Welcome to Press Club. I'm your host, Josh Constein of venture capital firm SignalFire. And today we have an incredible show lined up for you about the rise of the solopreneur. And we couldn't have that show without the two leaders of the platform that is defining the rise of the solo writer substack. And so thank you so much for coming here today. Please give a warm welcome to Hamish and Chris, two of the co-founders of Substack. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks, Josh. Here on Press Club, we bring together the big leaders in tech to talk about the top issues. And I can't think of a more defining issue of the last few weeks than some of the biggest writers in the world leaving some of the biggest publications in the world to go solo and start their newsletters on Substack. You know, most recently, Charlie Warzel just left the New York Times. One of my favorite reporters, Casey Newton, left The Verge recently to start his own uh, publication called Platformer. And we're just seeing a huge wave of these defections. And I want to jump right in by asking why this is happening. So maybe you guys could tell me, are writers just underpaid or underserved? Why are they leaving these big pubs? I think um, they see it as an interesting option. They can go independent on Substack. They can pursue the kind of writing that they really um, most interested in pursuing without constraints. They like the format. It's different to social media. It's different to writing news articles in a formal formal setting. And they can make really good money this way. being supported directly by your readers is a liberating thing. And it's also an economically kind of exciting and interesting thing. So people see the potential, people are having good experiences, uh, hearing great things from their readers who like reading them in this format. And it's a compelling option for a writer in this day and age. I guess the underlying question though, is that are these star writers being undercompensated at top publications? You know, when you have a giant newsroom with a lot of bureaucracy to, to support and reporters of varying levels of popularity, sometimes it might feel like the, the best writers aren't getting a fair shake. You know, in sports, we see the stars of teams often paid magnitudes more than, you know, some of the substitutes on the team. And I don't think that that's usually true at big publications. So maybe you could talk about why the economics are appealing for a writer who maybe thinks that, they're they are a star or just that they have developed a really deep connection with their audience. One of the really interesting things about the Substack model is that once you have something that works, once you have, you know, the hard part is is getting a newsletter that people read. <laughs> like that's the tough part is is starting to send emails and have people want to get them week over week. Once you have that and once you have a set of people who are who love it and are willing to pay for it, first of all it lets you do a kind of work that might not otherwise be possible under a different model because your sort of your incentive now is to earn and keep the trust of your readers. It lets you do the work that you think is most valuable and that your readers will value the most. But it also means that once that once that's working, once that once you've kind of hit your stride and you've got a thing that's going, there's no reason that it can't double and triple and quadruple in size. And so even if you start in a comparable place to where you might be if you're in a bigger company or doing something else, if you get the model working, there's really not an upper limit. So as a writer, you get to tap into a lot more of the upside in the case where it's going really well. Why do you think that the, that these publications haven't recognized this sort of dichotomy where maybe some of their reporters might need to be paid a lot more if they're going to retain them? Like, Why are these publications that seem to have reasonably deep pockets, have known about these issues for a long time, have, you know, are, are watching the rise of things like Substack, why haven't they been able to react? I really don't feel like I've seen any publication take action to, you know, to end this sort of leakage of their best reporters. And if anything, you know, the union busting and... Uh, uh, continuously sort of mediocre wages, I think have pushed more people in this direction. Why aren't they reacting? It's a difficult position for them to be in because their their business model is structured differently. Their business model is structured around uh, bundling together a large group of writers 
and then offering them at a reasonable price in some cases free to an audience. And under that model, the, the dynamics are just different and it does constrain the ability to pay those top writers and some of those other writers, if you'd ask me, what they deserve. I would add, maybe they will. And I kind of hope, I think they should. And if one of the effects of this new model is getting writers paid more in other places, like we're thrilled with that. We think that that's a great thing. Yeah, maybe you guys can kind of challenge this, uh, you know, this wage suppression that feels like it's happening where if no other publication pays a higher rate, then no other publication really has to worry about it. And it seems like suddenly there's this very different option. Um, but one of the other things I think is really happening here is this change from publishers to personalities in terms of what people trust. You know, maybe philosophically, you could just sort of like zoom out a little bit for us and talk about what you think is going on across maybe the broader media landscape of that sense of, you know, instead of... Uh, you know, consumers, users, fans thinking about, oh, I want to connect with a publication and kind of whoever they employ or a record label and whoever there is on their label. Uh, the, instead, they're thinking about connecting directly with individuals because that seems like a massive shift in how media gatekeeping works. When we started Substack, one of the things we uh, talked about is that you're not really subscribing to a newsletter so much. You're not really subscribing to a publication, but you are subscribing to a person, like someone whose worldview and voice you kind of love or trust. And, you know, regardless of what might be happening in the sort of macro landscape, and there are some things going on, I think, where people are having different relationships with public institutions, some of which are, are media institutions. I think it's always going to be true that you can have that one writer or a small handful of writers, and some people, maybe many more writers, you just really relate to so strongly that you're willing to go with them anywhere they go and you respect what they had to say, and you kind of want to see their filter on the, or you want to see the world through their eyes, regardless of whether or not you agree with everything they say as well. Sometimes it's just interesting. And you want to get that person's take. How do you sort of replace those same trust structures, though, if people don't feel like ne- that they can necessarily say like, oh, there's some somebody overwatching uh, what the, what is being produced here, that there's some you know level of fact checking, ethics, you know, standards of objectivity, or is that even are, are those things that even matter anymore? I think in some cases, those, those things are just not going to matter. Like in some, in some cases, there are people who are looking for authoritative sources of information and a more like news reporting based service. And in some cases, people are happy to get the kind of unfiltered voice of, you know, what used to be known as a blogger. Bloggers and blogging has value whether or not it's edited or filtered or run through a fact checking process. But for the rest of uh, the ecosystem and for those readers who really do care deeply about those things and are searching those things out, even in the Substack model or models like Substacks, I think there's going to be the development of an, of an ecosystem where writers can start being in charge of these new versions of media empires where they can bring on editing support or fact-checking support or tap into an ecosystem of services where those kinds of things are offered as well. This is just the very early days of this ecosystem. and. I think there's going to be some really interesting developments. For example, we already see writers like Isaac Saul write about this recently. Isaac Saul is a politics writer who runs a newsletter on Substack called Tangle. And he has built a great audience and a great business. He is public with his numbers. He said he's uh, in his first year already approaching $200,000 a year. And he's using that money to invest further in his business by working with editors and employing, you know, employing people to help him with editing and, and research. And that kind of behavior, I think we're going to see a lot more of. It's uh, That's really exciting to me. 
What do you think, Chris? Like maybe you can give us that philosophical perspective of like why this there's this shift happening in gatekeeping from, uh, you know, from aggregated organizations to individuals. I think we are even not necessarily anti-institution or anti, like Hamish said a key thing, which is like the people building these new media empires. We think of a substack as not something that's necessarily always an individual person. It's great because it lets an individual person start a new thing. And if there if there's a if there's a space where there's a hunger for something and there's a, a place that readers want something and you can kind of start out and make something that doesn't exist, you can as one person go and do that. And you can start with nothing else. And like we want to take down all of the barriers to to letting you do that. And the internet makes that possible and Substack makes it easy. But part of the thing that we're excited about with Substack is these not being necessarily, you know, solo run things forever. Like some of these things, some writers want to do that and that's great and it can be wildly successful. But some people start a Substack with the hopes of building a new institution. If you're dissatisfied or you think there's something that's, that's, there's room for something better and you're a writer, we want, Substack wants to put you in charge and let you kind of like do your own thing and maybe build something new. And so we see lots of people on Substack employing people, starting to, starting to hire editors and reporters and things like this. And we think that's great. We're not sort of like anti groups of people working together. We think that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's been a lot of success recently with uh, with investors who've gone from being Substacks to the Substack newsletter writers to suddenly like r- launching their own funds. Are you guys going to do some uh, integration with AngelList? Probably not. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Uh, but I, I want to hear about a little bit about your moderation policies. So, you know, we've, you've seen some Substack writers leave because they disagree with the politics or the, you know, what the, the speech of other uh, Substack writers, you know, what's happening there? And do you think, is that okay? Or how do you feel about that situation? You know, do you think of Substack as being like a publisher of these writers? Or do you think of it as more like the underlying platform? You know, there's that quote that like, you know, would you get mad at somebody because they wrote something on paper? Would you sort of like, you know, say you're not going to use paper anymore, even though it's not really the paper manufacturer's fault. Right. If someone, if someone else uses Gmail and if I'm using Gmail and there's somebody bad using Gmail, is that a bad thing? We definitely see ourselves as a platform. This is kind of the whole point of Substack is as a writer, it's your thing. Like you are the publisher. Like that's the thing that you get to do. We don't, you know, you own the content, you and your, your relationship with the audience, you have complete editorial independence. It's like your thing. You can leave whenever you want. Like we very much want to favor writer independence. And so we see ourselves as the platform that enables that and breaks down the barriers. We are not ourselves a publisher. We are allowing a million publishers to come into existence. And we take the stance that, in doing that, having a strong bent towards having a free press is a really important way to go about doing that. And we recognize that that is itself not like a politically neutral stance. Like we are sort of expressing a, expressing a belief and expressing our values in that, that a free press is important, that putting readers and writers in charge is important. As a writer, you have editorial independence. As a reader, you're deciding what writers you want to follow, who you want to invite into your inbox. And, you know, we take we, we try to err really far on the side of kind of protecting the readers and the writers' freedom to, to do that as they want. Like if you're going and saying, hey, I want to get this person's emails and they want to send you the emails, we think you have to cross a really, really high bar before we as a platform could ever be justified in coming in and saying, no, even though you're both opting into this, we're going we're gonna to remove this, right? And there's some things we have to do for the health of the platform. We have to prevent spam. We have to prevent 
you know, certain kinds of abuse, we can moderate it at the, at the very far extremes. But we think we have to take a really strong stance in favor of free expression. And some people don't agree with that. And we respect their, their right not to agree with that either. Could I ask a little bit about how you guys think about drawing that line? Is that something that like it's the co-founders who are thinking through? Do you ask like the rest of the team what their perspective is? Do you have do you have like a head of moderation or, or policy that sets those kind of rules? Just trying to get a sense of you know, how pe- you come to the decision of saying like this is harassment that's like really you know toxic or could even lead to like threats of violence versus oh this is something where you know it, it's negative it's it's critical it's insulting but it doesn't cross that line like how do you know where to draw that line? We have a content policy that we've worked on together with the team, with, with some people that we've had advisors. And the, the way that we put it into practice depends on the type of thing you're talking about. So we're sort of like crystallizing these things as we go. So for example, if you're dealing with spam, we take a really hard line and we you know have like automated systems that are coming and throwing it off. And the places where it kind of bumps into this thing of like, what does it mean to be in support of a free press? What counts as real journalism? You know, there's often a, a strong kind of tension between people doing journalistic work they think is important and what, you know, what counts as publishing private information and this whole line, anything that's sort of flirting with that stuff bubbles up to us, the founders right now. And then do you guys start sort by consensus? Chris, do you kind of have the last say as the CEO? And, you know, what do you think about people like Facebook, which have gone with an oversight board where they've actually outsourced some of that decision making? Do you think that that might be something eventually that like, a you know, a, a, a panel of top Substack writers might help contribute to that moderation policy? Or do you think it's something that you guys are going to run entirely yourselves long term? Right now, the, the founders decide together and we kind of jointly take responsibility for the decisions we make on the platform. Something that's really interesting about Facebook and about some of these other platforms that have grappled with this stuff is we do think that Substack is kind of fundamentally different, right? Like if you're Facebook or you're YouTube or you're one of these other platforms that's kind of whose job is to serve you up this aggregate feed, as a reader, you're kind of delegating to Facebook. You're saying, hey, Facebook, you tell me what I should see. And Facebook is working kind of for you and kind of against you and that they want to kind of show you the stuff that is the most compelling, that's the most engaging, that's going to keep you there the longest. And inevitably that kind of like pulls to, it almost pulls you towards things that are going to be deranging or polarizing or dangerous. Like there's kind of like a, on the one hand, they have these rules that say you can't go there. On the other hand, they have this algorithm that kind of pulls you in that direction. And so they have, I think, a really hard, maybe an insurmountable moderation problem to solve. And I'm not sure there, that, I'm not sure there exists a good solution for Facebook. And I'm not sure that modeling what we do on what they do would make a lot of sense because on Substack, it's it's really up to the reader to decide what to read. And while that doesn't make it trivial, it doesn't like erase all of these problems or mean that we don't have to do anything. I do think it makes it a much more solvable problem and not directly comparable to when you think of Facebook or Twitter, et cetera. Does that instead just sort of move that algorithm decision over to Google? Because you know, they're the ones now, you know, their algorithms are largely de- defining whether, you know, my, the Substacks I subscribe to end up in, you know, the promotions tab or in my primary tab. And, you know, I'm sure part of that is related to click-through rates, which might be, again, uh, related to how incendiary or maybe even polarizing your headline is or your your subject line for your email. So how do you guys think about the, you know, the push and pull with, with 
Google and you know the email delivery services uh, to think about open rates and how that kind of set, acts as almost like a proxy for uh, for algorithms. Because you know I'd love to think of email as being an unintermediated channel the way that SMS truly is, but the fact is that it does get mediated. It does you know it does get sorted by those email clients. Yeah, and email is email is a whole wild world. Um, and the, one of the nice things about email is that Gmail is really big, but it's far from the only email client. And the email protocol is kind of like this old and robust like piece of the open internet that there are pieces of it that, you know, Gmail does have a lot of power of who goes into what inbox and, and so do the other sort of email providers. Um, they're ultimately mostly looking at trying to keep people, <laughs> people happy, keep spam out of their inbox. Um, so there is some element of that, but it's not because it's not it's not sitting there optimizing for what's going to keep me addicted. It's kind of optimizing for like, please don't show me spam in my inbox. It's at least not kind of like directly working against you in the same way. And it is something that we have to be careful about. It's something that Substack writers have to be thoughtful about is treating people's emails with respect, right? Like you're signing up for a newsletter, you're kind of like opting in to get communication. As a writer, you own that communication channel. You have to be thoughtful about it. If you start sending stuff that people think is spam, you're going to wind up with problems with Gmail. Um, but on the whole, it actually works really well. And in fact, well, I'll, I'll pause there. I have more thoughts on this, but I don't want to go on a super long rant. No, go on a super long rant. That's like the whole point of being here on Clubhouse. Okay. Well, this is part of my theory of why Substack works at all is like a lot of this is modeled on like blogging, right? Remember when there was a blogosphere and that was a, a fun new word that we had and, and blogs were a thing and people were like, oh God, blogs are, are disrupting the media, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think there was, I think the blogging was basically amazing and I love the golden age of blogging and there was so much like boundless energy there. And the two real problems with it were like, number one, there was never a business model. Okay. That's, that's a big deal. And so Substack, you know, charge subscriptions and people pay and maybe they wouldn't have done that then, but they do now and it's wonderful. But the other problem with blogging was that people switched to mobile and you used to go, used to browse the web, used to go to bookmarks and like surf and, and go to different things. And then you go to your phone and really what you do is like, I go to the little rectangles on my home screen and I need a push notification to put a little dot to remind me to go there. And so being on the web kind of got broken in a way. And there's no way as a writer to get into one of the little rectangles in the home screen without going through one of these these you know sort of out engagement algorithms in your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever that you have to game and play in these ways with the exception of email, right? Email is kind of the last thing everyone has on their home screen that also you have push notifications for that you can reach out and sort of form this channel in a way that people actually use in mobile. The reason that email works so well is that it has this property. It's kind of like the last vestige of the open internet that kind of works on your phone. Yeah, that's a really exciting part of it. I think like that's why so many people are moving off of these platforms. You know, we had Jack Conti, the Patreon CEO on the show last week. And one of the top trends that we're finding across the creator economy is that creators are trying to move their audiences off of these truly intermediated algorithmic platforms where, you know, they might build up 100,000 subscribers, but they just really don't know how many of them they can even reach uh, through the feeds. And instead, they're moving to places where they actually get to own that email address and own that or own that phone number so that they know they can have that 
long-term connection with them. And I think that that's one of the most important parts of, uh, of, of what I think is so cool about Substack is that you truly do own those emails. And that means that you can kind of leave at your leisure. Uh, we're going to have some amazing creators, some of the top writers from Substack joining us in a few minutes. Uh, but we also want to take some questions from the audience later. So if you want to ask a question, you can go to constein.club. Uh, Austin has it in the top of the followed by speaker box. And there you'll be able to submit questions uh, that we can ask on stage and pull you up for that. Uh, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But yeah, I, the next question I really wanted to ask though is about how you guys think about the long-term monetization for some of these creators. So some of you, what you guys have been doing lately is offering contracts or subsidies, which go a really long way to helping people quit their jobs and, and to say like, oh, you don't have to work for that publication anymore. You might be scared you're not going to get enough subscribers right at first, but we'll offer you this subsidy, this contract, this advance so that you can make money in the meantime. And then eventually you're back to your own. But I guess the big question for me is what happens after that? So maybe we could first talk about the contracts and the subsidies. Like how has that program been going and how do you guys think about that long term? Is that something you want to keep doing? Is that something that's more of like a growth hack in the early days of Substack where we are now? How are you thinking about offering those subsidies? And you know, right now it's been to some traditional journalists uh, and then we can get into the local stuff in a moment too. But yeah, I wanted to hear about your sort of overarching philosophy around subsidies and advances. The program is going amazingly. Uh, it's going incredibly well. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for, for asking. And critically, it's not a subsidy. And so the reason we kind of started doing this is we started having this conversation with writers over and over again, where we would say, hey, you should try the Substack model, right? You're going to make two, three times what you're making now very quickly if you come on the Substack. We've seen this enough times. You're going to be independent. You're going to be able to choose what you write about. You're going to own all your content. You're going to have a direct relationship with your audience. And they would say, that's amazing. That sounds great. I love all of that. It sounds like a great deal. But I don't know if I can like, I can take the risk. I don't know if I can like cover my rent while I try to do that thing. And I'm not sure if you're just lying to me. Like, I'm not sure if it, you're saying this could go really great, but like, how, how do I know that I can believe you? And so the programs that we've been running have been not about subsidizing people at all, actually. It's been about taking some of the risk onto ourselves in order to kind of like tear down the barrier to getting started so that there's not a, there's not things that are in the kind of, they're not worrying about making rent for the first few months while they're doing this, or they're not worrying about the risk. And actually, you know, in exchange for some of the upside, like we, we make money off these deals. That's kind of the whole, the whole point of it. And the way that it works is you basically get a, a big chunk for your first year and it gives you the space to kind of like take a real shot at this and take a leap. And then after the first year, it just turns back to the normal Substack deal. And by the way, when we, when we do this, we tell people, we say, hey, when we offer you this deal, we think you would make more money if you didn't take it, right? That's sort of how this works. We're taking some of the risk, but if you, if you want to take the risk, we actually think you would make more money if you didn't take it. And some people do that. Some people say, okay, great. Actually, that's a good deal. And they go and they take it and they make more money. Some people say, hey, the security is really important to me. It's going to really help me get unstuck. It's going to help me. I don't have a bunch of money sitting around. This lets me do it. And then as of year two, they, they're just in the same place. They own everything. It's their content. It's their thing. They've got all the relationships. It's really a way to kickstart independence for us. I love that you guys, both Substack and Clubhouse, have really taken to that idea early in their, their journeys. You know, so many of these big social platforms spent years denying any real monetization features or any even just payouts to their creators, and they just expected them to sort of do the labor for free. And Paul, I, I'd love to ask you, like, were, were you at all inspired 
uh, by Substack when you when it came to the new creator pilot program that you guys are offering to help with some financial assistance to help people you know create more full time on on Clubhouse? Yeah, I think we were honestly like we had, you know we we share an investor and and we had talked with Andrew about um, uh, about different ways that that platforms could support their creators and and I remember months ago, he pointed us to some early examples and, and, and said really good things about the work that Chris and the Substack team are doing. And I think that if you look at what Substack's doing, there are a number of different variants of it too, right? There, there are sort of fellowships and grant programs. And I think they've been leading the way in a lot of the thinking around this. And so, yeah, I think the answer is yes. So, Thank you, Chris and Hamish. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems very different than the, you know, the old model, which was like just grinded out as a platform trying to get those early adopters uh, when you didn't necessarily have the audience or they wouldn't immediately have the audience to sustain that. But instead, you know, it feels like there's this new wave of creator economy startups, which are saying like, no, our success is dependent on having these great creators on our platform. So if we have to take some of the financial risk, we believe in our own platform and the, you know, the desire for people to come here to consume this kind of content and art, you know, is that, is that what's going on here? And do you think that we're going to see more of this sort of across the industry that more uh, platforms and more mediums are going to take up this idea that maybe you got to raise a bit more money at first, but then at least you can pay out and take off, take some of the risk off of the backs of your creators? I, I actually don't know if you need to, I, I guess you could say you do raise more capital if you want to do the, the types of things that, that Substack's doing right now, which, which makes a ton of sense, but you can see the economics, like, like what Chris and Amos were talking about, like it, if you have a lot of talented creators and, and you give them the right options, you can have a model that makes sense for everyone in the near term. And from our perspective, I think that it's a really good way to align incentives and, and to encourage healthy, sustainable growth because it gives creators a reason to come on the platform, to bring their audience, to host great conversations, to bring on great guests. And we actually considered making Clubhouse a fully subscription service in the early days. And, and we thought about the pros and cons of that and decided to take a, a slightly different approach, but the spirit of it was the same. And I think if you do it well, it actually just means you can build a sustainable business sooner in the life cycle of the company. And you can also align the incentives properly for everyone, like the hosts, the guests, the businesses that want to help support them and, and the listeners who, who want to participate. For Substack's part, for us, it was really important that from day one, before we knew whether Substack would be a thing, before we knew whether we'd take the like the Silicon Valley startup approach, was that we had a business model that was clear and simple and transparent and it worked. Because writers especially had been used to being made promises to and then aggregated into these systems where they're then sort of parceled out to readerships that the, uh, the big systems would generate. But then the business model part hadn't been figured out. And then as these other attempts to to help writers in the past did try to figure out those business models and scrambled and made misstep and then misstep and then maybe got to something. It was writers who were hurt at each step along the way. And so we were very careful and um, insistent on having a business model that was understandable and that worked. And Substack, when we started it, we were like, is this too simple? <laughs> kind of, it kind of like feels a little bit stupid that this doesn't exist already. You, you can start a newsletter and you can get paid for it. And then just feeling that simplicity and feeling that Maybe it was stupid. <laughs> uh, maybe it was so, so simple it was stupid that we thought that was actually potentially a really good thing. That was a reason to give it a shot. Okay, so now I want to zoom forward. So 
some of you guys creators, you know, they've get, they've taken this deal where you guys take the maybe the lion's share of their uh, subscription revenue in exchange for a big advance early. But eventually, they go back to the traditional deal that all Substack uh, premium uh, or paid newsletter writers get, which is that you guys take ten percent cut. But the question is, when you get really big, when you've got you know five hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue or a million dollars a year, and you start to that ten percent starts to be fifty or a hundred k, you know how do you keep those writers from leaving? How do you make sure that they don't go to a platform that charges them you know a flat small fee per month uh, because it's just hard to you know offer fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars worth of value? How do you guys think about retaining those whale writers long term? Yeah, that's a great question because you know the reason we're sort of in this position is a we want to have our business model be aligned with writers right we want it to be the case that we cannot succeed unless you succeed we never make money unless you make money and the more that we can help you succeed the more money we're going to get like we've designed the business model so that we are kind of like aligned with what the writer wants and we make it easy to leave right one of our core promises is you own the list you own the content this is your thing you can go anytime um, and so we've really put ourselves in kind of like a, a position where we have to demonstrate a lot of value for the writers in order to get them to want to stay. And there's a lot of things that we can do to do that. You know, a lot of it comes down to adding in the early days, it comes down to adding value in the the software and the tools and the support and the, you know, all of the things that kind of make it so that you can just come and write and this whole thing kind of works. But in the long run, it really comes down to the growth side of the thing, right? And so if you, when you look at the economics of one of these businesses and you see the rate at which it can grow when it's going well and the people that are in this, in this position where, oh my gosh, this fee is starting to add up a lot. What's always true is that the growth rate, the rate at which you're growing has way more of an impact in how much money you're going to make over the next year, two years, three years than like what exactly the fee is you're making, right? The thing that really matters is like, how fast am I growing? Because that's going to add up over a couple of years to like a three, four, five X difference. That's going to totally overwhelm the 10%, 5%, 0%, 20%. Like it's sort of like almost doesn't matter at that point. So we want to make the platform the best possible place to build one of these businesses, which means making the tools really slick and making everything kind of automatic and putting in best practices and taking all of the knowledge that we have from the ecosystem and making like each decision in the platform, like work the way that it's going to be the best for you. So it's kind of on autopilot. And then the other thing that we think we can do is help introduce, help introduce readers to writers that they're going to fall in love with. And this is really the best long-term answer to this is like, if you're making any amount of money, if you're making a hundred million dollars a year from Substack and you're paying 10% and you're like, Oh my God, 10, $10 million a year is too much. If we can go back to you and we can say, Hey, you may be paying 10% of a fee, but look here, 20% of your, of your readership came because of the benefit you got from being on the Substack platform. We're introduced to you through the network of Substack readers and writers. It actually looks like you're paying negative 10%. And that's kind, of, that's kind of the ultimate answer to that question, I think. So it sounds like the growth playbook is really that part. It's like helping people figure out how to grow their free list, how to convert their free list into paid subscribers, because all of the other services, the editing, design, even legal assistance or health insurance, like those can all be paid for in, in cash for that people might be making on another platform. But it's that growth that seems like the one unique thing that Substack wants to offer that could make it almost seem like the, the, the rake is negative. So what is it that you can do on that front? Because, you know, in 
terms of discovery, you guys launched the reader. Uh, and I think that that's, I'd love to hear a little bit about how that's gone, but you know, what else can you actually do to help that in a way that doesn't necessarily just, you know, cross promote uh, creators in a way that might cannibalize some people's subscribers uh, or that just sort of makes the platform have to get into a strange curatational position where it has to take on some of the policies or the, you know, the politics of the people that it promotes if you guys are doing that promotion. Because that sort of seems like it steps over the line of saying, we're not the publisher to saying, well, if we're trying to help you grow, like, isn't that kind of a publisher role? You know, it's interesting you talk about cross promotion and how it would be like cannibalizing. And I think you can, it's easy to imagine a, a world where you do that badly. But something that we're seeing happening naturally, organically on the platform today is writers promote each other. Writers want to help each other, right? We, we built a feature because people were demanding it from us. It's like a blog role. It's like, here are, all, here are all of the other writers that if you like me, you would probably go and like. And so I think there's, you know, there's a bad way that we could do this where we come in and say, hey, we're Substack. We're going to like take your readers and, and show stuff to them that you might not want. And that's going to be how we make this work. But there's a good way that we do this where we say, hey, you're a writer on Substack. One of the most valuable things you can do for your readers is to help put them onto other stuff that they would like. And it turns out that people do this naturally. People want to have blog roles. People want to link to each other. People want to do guest posts. People have been coming and asking to us, like, how could we bundle together? How could we like kind of like work together for the benefit of all to grow faster and to like make this kind of like scene that's growing together? And I think that there is a huge opportunity there where we don't violate the fundamental contract of Substack, which is you have this direct relationship with your readers and writers, but we actually lean on that. And we say, this is one of the great things you can do on Substack is help introduce your readers to this wider network that they get value from. I really do like that because I think we saw the Vine creators explode in popularity through that cross-promotional move where they guested in each other's videos, they revined each other's videos, and it sort of grew this oligarchy of the biggest creators on that platform. Uh, beyond that kind of collaboration and doing that cross-promotion and encouraging that, you know, lightly leaning on writers to say like, hey, take a little bit of time or a little bit of space in your newsletter to promote somebody else. You know, what else can you guys do to help warrant that 10% fee for when creators start getting really big? I do think that it's, it's, it's all of the things that are introducing readers to new writers. And the, the writers promoting each other is one of the things, having a, having a unified reader experience where readers can come and, and have all of the direct relationships gives us a lot of like places that we can help readers find stuff. But at the end of the day, that's the, that's the magic. It's like, we're going to help readers who are going to love your thing, but otherwise might not have found it discovery. I like that. And you know, you've seen these other platforms like Ghost coming up. Uh, any thoughts on sort of how, you know, how that the ecosystem ends up playing out? Like, do you think that there's room for both of the, like the role your own as well as the platform? Yeah, I definitely think so. And the, the role your own existed even before Substack and even before Ghost. I mean, Ghost kind of, took, I think, took some, took some inspiration in some ways. But the idea of like, I'm going to go and host my own website and run my own email list and do my own payments thing. Like there was people doing that. There was Ben Thompson. There was a bunch of people that, that had this thing. And I think there's always, you know, something that Substack is not great for is if you're like, hey, I want to, I really want to own my whole tech stack. I really want to have like every piece of this. Like I want to write the code. I want to customize this and that. I think there are people out there who want that and who love that. And there's going to be, there's always going to be a, a market for that. And Substack is, is much more for the like, if I don't want to do all this stuff, I just need it to work. And I need to work everywhere and be really simple and easy to do. I think both of those are great. Both of them are good businesses. And in general, like when we have competition, we love to see writers succeeding. We love to see writers making money and getting their independence and building real businesses and, and shaping the world. 
And we love it when we're the ones that get to help them with that. And we also love it when other people get to do it. It's kind of like, we're just excited about this wild new thing that's happening. Awesome. So I'd love to invite some of the, the uh, top writers from the platform up on stage to, to get their perspective as well. It's like, you know, we want to know what they were really thinking as well. And one of the topics that I'd love to just hear them talk about is that concept of the publisher uh, being replaced by the personality. Uh, Zainab, I know you were interested in uh, Bill Bishop. If you, if you want to come up here, we'd love to have you as well. Uh, but one of the other questions I wanted to ask the founders in the meantime, uh, you guys are launching this local program and we've seen, you know, big attempts like patch from AOL sort of fail over and over and try to build up that local ecosystem uh, of publishers. And a lot of times it's been because ad revenue is just really tough to get when you don't have that many readers, which most local publications don't, even though they're so vital to our democracy and to just have feeling like you li- truly live in a city. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about like, why do you think the, the local program that you guys are offering, which is you know, giving uh, up to $100,000 to 30 writers to help them uh, get off the ground with their local publications, you know, why is that a better approach than what we've seen in the past firm? Uh, in, in terms of these platforms trying to push local news? Well, it's, it's another approach. It's, it's an area that's so important. It requires a lot of experimentation. And we think the more people are in the space trying to make local news work, the better. And this is, this is kind, of, kind of our offer. We've seen this model work really well. The principles at Substack were built on that you didn't have to have a huge, totally scaled audience where you're reaching millions of readers in order to have a business model that makes sense. The principle was you could have just a few people who care very deeply instead of being casually engaged. And because they care deeply, it's not only that they'll like pay, they won't just grudgingly pay. They'll be happy to pay to support the mission of this work, to support uh, these writers who they love and trust, to support this valuable service that's being delivered to them. And that principle holds, we've seen it. It holds whether it's uh, an analyst writing about the markets or um, a China hand writing about US-China relations, or someone writing about their local community or local city hall. And so we think that local news is so important that it's worth not just sitting around waiting for others to kind of magically solve the problems in the industry for. We want to do whatever we can, whatever's in our power to accelerate the development of it. And in in this case, that means um, putting some money towards writers who want to give this model a shot with the Substack subscription model in mind. Amazing. Yeah. I think that that's really wonderful to see because I know those local blogs that emerged in San Francisco back in like the early 2010s made it so much, it made it feel like a community again in a city that felt like it was kind of being torn apart. Uh, so uh, we've got some of the most amazing writers on stage. Zainab uh, Tufaxi, who used to be at the New York Times, uh, Bill and Heather, thank you guys so much for joining us. We'd just love to hear your perspective on this concept of you know publishers being replaced by personalities and that like kind sort of shift in trust. Zainab, maybe you can start us off. Okay, because um, I'm not really going to agree with that. I'm sort of uh, trying to come at it in a way that makes sense because, I mean, look, okay, let me say it this way. Like over the past year or like over many uh, years, I've criticized big institutions all the time. Like this pandemic, I've been criticizing the CDC, the WHO. I've criticized the New York Times here and there. But I mean, overall, if you wanted to... Like, if you didn't know much else, if you wanted to take their word or mine, I I would take their word just as my default because they do have something, you know, that institutional structure really does matter for uh, many kinds of things. Uh, What I personally find really valuable in kind of this newsletter and Substack model is doing things that 
don't require or benefit necessarily from that institutional setup. So you're not really going to replicate the kind of, you know, investigation into uh, the president taxes with just one person. I mean, you can't even replicate that even if that person is brilliant and, you know, gets legal support from Substack or something like that. That's just a different ballgame. And that requires the kind of things that uh, big newspapers can do. But there's a lot of things that either they don't do and also they do things that are incorrect and you need a space to say this is not right. And there's a lot of things besides news in this world, like besides that kind of news uh, that one is talking about that are valuable. I mean, the sort of, who was saying it before? Like just what we used to call blogging is a great space. But if it's just a hobby, uh, then the people who kind of can do it, it turns out, you know, being either a few academics or um, people who are already well off. If you're depending on ads, which uh, blogs used to do, then you're in the attention economy place again, and which is not great, as we have seen. So there's a lot of things I think you can do as the person, like not as a counter to what the big institutions can do, but something kind of outside of it. So I wouldn't really see, you know, uh, this shift you're talking about in the sense that uh, big newsletters, anybody's newsletter, uh, replacing the big institutions. If anything, probably the big institutions will start their own newsletters, but it won't really work because they're they're also a different animal. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so they might try to replicate that, but it's not going to work because you need a certain kind of freedom and a certain kind of different incentive structure, which is not going for ads, not necessarily going for scale, and just keeping your voice uh, in that space, which like I, I, I subscribe to Bill, I subscribe to lots of people on Substack, um, that I just really like and I learn a lot from, they don't replace the other stuff, but I really learn a lot from it. In fact, if anything, they deepen it. So I find it um, like a space that was necessary, but not a space that's filling. Like It's not like Facebook taking over or Craigslist taking over ads from the newspaper, if you ask me. And the competition on some, a few high profile names, you know, will they be there or there? I think that's kind of like, that's always gets their attention, but that's like the tip of the thing, right? That's not where most of the interesting things will happen. If it all it becomes is whether, I mean, someone like, say, Matt Iglesias writes for Substack or a traditional outlet, like that's not as interesting to me as all the rest of it for as far as I'm concerned, at least. Well, that's a great point, the idea that it's sort of augmenting the existing uh, journalism or you know, written content ecosystem by saying uh, there are a bunch of things that maybe are a little bit too weird or just sort of unconstrained by word counts or even some objectivity standards that you can do when, you're th- when you go independent. But that doesn't mean it's going to replace these long-form investigations, for instance. Uh, Bill and Heather would love to hear your perspective on this, this sort of shift or augmentation of personality to publishers. Uh, you know... I- I've been writing for online magazines since the birth of uh, online magazines, pretty much. I wrote for Suck.com, which was like the first daily webzine, essentially. I wrote cartoons for it. And then I wrote for Salon. I wrote for The All. I wrote for The Cut. And I think that we're in this moment where there's not a lot of space in media for weird, eccentric, strange voices. Um, 
Gawker apparently is coming back. Bustle's going to bring back Gawker. But you used to have Grantland, Gawker, Jezebel, a lot of different places that were very vibrant, and everyone was always talking about what they were doing. Um, before that, there was Spy, obviously, before the internet. But essentially, um, what I feel that Substack is doing is is uh, not is sort of like filling a void in the media universe where there are not enough eccentric voices in the mix. And part of the reason there aren't enough eccentric voices in the mix is that the culture is very afraid of uh, social media blowback right now. And I'm not talking about cancel culture, but it's just that editors are attuned to what people think because there's all of this obvious feedback from the world, which you know should be the case. That's a good democratizing force. Um, but as a result of that force, as a result of that pressure, there's a very self-conscious uh, ambiance, let's say, in media. And so Substack, to me, has come in and filled in this gap that's incredibly important. And as a writer, it's very exciting. I had a blog in 2001, it lasted until 2010. Um, this is just like the perfect place for me. And I think that the two things that Substack does really well um, or the, the two things that it offers um, to people and, and the newsletters in general offer is uh, an ability to control your IP, an ability, like you said, Josh, to build your list. Um, those two things are invaluable right now. The other thing is Substack is, has a great design, there's great support, and it's very transparent. And, and listen, the deals are making a massive difference to writers because they're afraid... Writers are naturally insecure animals. Um, <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> you know, we're, <laughs> you know, we're, exactly, we're afraid, you know? When I talk to other people about Substack, they're always like, I'm too insecure for that. I don't want to see my numbers. And I'm like, I love numbers. I want to see my numbers. Judge me, rate me. Um, but I think that, you know, it's a, it's a place, it's a place that, that actually, once you get past that initial leap, um, it's a place where it's possible to thrive. The Shatner Chatner by Danny Lavery is one of my favorite publications run by a single human being who's amazingly brilliant. And it's amazing that there's a space for someone like that to thrive. Zainip is wonderful. I, um, the, uh, Delia Kai of these, these links is incredible. I follow so many Substacks, but some of them are just irreplaceable. And do they replace the New York Times? Of course not. But it's a vibrant wild space um, that I think a lot of writers are naturally just going to be attracted to. Um, it, for me, it feels like a new era of blogging, but it also feels like a new era of being a kind of business person and a writer at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I felt like Clubhouse did a lot of a similar thing to the you know, the audio space. It felt like we got all these crazy, weird, and beautiful emergent cultures, like the lullaby rooms, for instance, that just like would never happen in the podcast space. And that's what I think is, is great that it doesn't everything doesn't have to be so buttoned up, even if like my show, for instance, is kind of buttoned up. Uh, yeah. So, Bill, we'd love to hear your opinion on this. Um, hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Chris and Hamish. Uh, uh, anyway, it's hey. Um, no, I mean, so I started on Substack uh, three and a half years ago, and you know, I'm I'm not a journalist. I sort of do commentary analysis, curation about China-related stuff, both in in English and Chinese. And um, I was I was one of those people. I was I was actually had been blogging for a long time, had WordPress, had 
had spun up like a memberful MailChimp WordPress kind of Rube Goldberg hack to sort of start charging and wasn't super happy with what it was going to be and ended up just timing wise that um, reconnect with Hamish. And so went with Substack. But so for me, you know, again, I, I just, I just write my newsletter and it's great and I don't have to worry about any other stuff. I mean, one of the people I talked to for who really convinced me after blogging for free for like six years was Ben Thompson, who, who really worked me over that I start charging and he made the point repeatedly and he still makes it. He's so right, which is, you know, you, you pick an area and it can be big or small you become one of the top sort of considered to be one of the, one of the more top authoritative people in that area. And your entire, your market is whoever's interested in that area in the entire world. And Substack just flattens everything out and makes it so much easier to basically, you know, Substack and Stripe because Stripe has, you know, can charge in, in so many geographies that it just makes it basically my audience is anyone in the world who's interested in China and is willing to pay for it. And, you know, the, again, slice it across how many hundreds or thousands of different niches, and it 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 really is quite remarkable. And you know, in some ways, like Zenup was saying, I mean, this is not going to replace the New York Times, but it also, you know, some of the newsletters, you know, we can go broader and deeper in many ways than the New York Times can on certain subject areas. Certainly not reporting like the New York Times is, but you know, frankly, that's a very very expensive model, and not every every reader wants that or wants that every day. And so, again, I mean, Substack really feels like they've just basically I don't know flattened is the right word, but they just stretched it out so that the market, the addressable market, is really the entire world. And the same thing with Clubhouse. And so, I have a media background. I was really co-founder of MarketWatch in 1990. God, it's old. Uh, 97. And, you know, we disrupted the financial media space, the consumer financial media space. And now Substack definitely is a disruptor. And it's much better to be on the Substack platform than off it, I think, because, you know, the big media guys are, I think, just sort of in the early days of their pain that platforms like Substack um, and others are going to are going to bring them. So anyway, thanks again, Amish and Chris. It's been a it's been a pretty crazy ride. It's really uh feels like a lot has happened in three and a half years that um, more like kind of a lifetime. All right. So while we got three writers and two founders, now is your chance. The three of you, what what are your feature requests? If you had like a quick lightning round of something you want Substack to add, uh, they're they are they are powerless to defend themselves right now on stage. So what what, what is it that you guys want to see added to this uh, this platform? The thing I'm kind of enjoying exploring right now is the um the commenting back and forth because I, we had this conversation with Hamish before. One of the things that is a danger of this model is the uh, it's a version of the attention economy problem, a version of it, not the same thing, which is that it just becomes a love fest, right? Uh, people like you, you like them, everybody likes each other, and we just kind of get stuck there. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, of course, people are going to subscribe to a writer you know they like and uh, vice versa. And I'm trying to find ways to encourage the the real conversation in the comments, uh, sort of like people saying, what about this? What about that? Uh, I myself, I'm trying to like solicit counters, people kind of trying to take down something I wrote and that kind of, you know, the the like substantive and well-natured debate. And what I'm finding is the, the, the comment sort of functionality is limited. I mean, it's fine. It's a newsletter. So it's still, you know, when you have a classroom, you can design it like a lecture hall where you have the big person, you know, go blah, blah, blah. I'm an academic, so I'm super familiar with that kind of captive audience model of speaking. 
But then there's like the, you know, break out into small groups and talk kind of thing, right? And when you do that, you usually arrange the chairs and stuff. Like you change the structure of the room because it's not going to work if it's still like a lecture room, right? And that's that architecture has a certain kind of thing. And I would love like more community features uh, in the space. And I think it's kind of interesting that a couple of the letters, newsletters I signed on to have announced to me that there's a Discord channel they're opening up. And like they're going someplace else to do that. You see what I'm saying? Like they're going outside a Substack to do something that is a natural fit to what Substack community building would be or could be. And so that's just the kind that's I think that's it's still very top heavy. And that community part is really what keeps people like that was the great about the blogging era, too, before it got out of hand. It was good. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense that like having that back and forth chat, being able to have a bit more of a contentious discussion is really powerful. It's there right now, but it's just very minimal functionality. So that's what I'm saying is like I would like a lot more. I love this idea. That's Chris's fault. So let him answer to that, Chris. (laughs) Why, Why can't we have gifts and comments? Thank you. No, it's a, it's it's a it's an amazing idea, and we this is something that we're really excited about. I love when people are doing this stuff on their own. I love when people are like publishing reader comments. I love people that have dissents that are publishing. Like here's here's a smart counter argument to mine. We've toyed with the idea of having like a rebuttal feature where you could kind of like write like a detailed counter and kind of build it in the platform that way. This is you hit the nail on the head. We we sort of have a basic version of commenting that we feel kind of like got us from nothing to having something and people are doing wild and wonderful things with it. And we would love to make it a lot better. So I appreciate hearing that. Awesome. Bill or Heather, any quick feature requests? I just kind of want to say that I love what Zainab said and that the thing about the Discord channel, people banding together to have their own Discord channel, it seems to me that like that could occur on Substack. I mean, Substack has a lot of opportunities to create community within the Substack community, obviously. Um, And obviously it takes some time. What's interesting, Zainab, is I feel like you're talking about changing the nature of comment section as they, comment sections as they've been established for like 20, you know, two decades now, longer. In the beginning, they were love, there was a lot of love. And then in sometime around the like 2000s, Things got aggressive. I wrote for Salon.com in, from 2003 to 2010. And Salon.com had like the most aggressively negative um, commenters, smart people, but very, very, like I had a guy who every single day, every week that I wrote my uh, TV column, I was a TV critic for Salon, he would, would be the first comment and he'd say, um, you're terrible at your job you fucking suck and I'd, I wish you'd disappear. They should fire you day after day after day. And then I tried to engage with him and it got worse. And then he suddenly decided that I was good at my job, but like this was like the personal nature of it. So I have this, I totally agree with Zainab that there should be a way to change the culture of comment sections. Personally, I have this conflicted relationship to it because on the one hand, it's hard to write for a publication that does not basically patrol the comment sections at all because you have not just advertisements, but also people aggressively attacking you in comment sections if you're a woman specifically. So on the one hand, you know, someone wrote something aggressively negative on 
my Ask Polly Substack, and I read it in the middle of the night by accident, and I got out of bed and and unsubscribed the person, like the most insecure per- writer in the universe. <laughs> um, like, what is wrong with me? But I get embarrassed when it's like, I just moved from New York Magazine, Ask Polly from New York Magazine to Substack, and I get embarrassed when people are fawning too, because I think the random person who doesn't care that much is just like, please stop. Like, like, let's have a real conversation. Oftentimes things do turn into a real conversation, but to shift that culture would be amazing. And if there's a way to say, today is aggro day, we're just gonna fight each other, you know, but be nice. I think that would be super cool. I also think it would be great to have like a Substack clubhouse talk show where there were just Substack writers shooting the shit with each other. Now that I'm shooting the shit, I think that would be cool. Tomorrow I'll say I'm not doing that. But, you know, I think that would be pretty fun. Love it. Thanks, Heather. Uh, Bill, any very quick feature requests? I got one or two more last quick questions for the founders. Sure. So, yeah, the comment section is great. I actually do it every, every Friday. Do one, and it's, it's definitely it's gotten better. And um, but I, I would I would love, you know, they, they've just started a rolled out a, like a program where you, you can you can give um a gifts like let let your your subscribers give um like a month a free gift to a certain number of um their contacts and actually it's um it's pretty good i had a pretty pretty good uptake and i guess really it would just be more discoverability and network effects and sort of how we're all siloed in our own substacks and that's great i don't know if it's disco- more better sort of discoverability through google search it just that kind of something to sort of get more things surfaced would be I know they're working on it, but that, that's something I think that will help sort of some, some folks break out to the next level, potentially. Yeah, I totally agree. I was surprised. I would have thought somebody would ask for more like burnout focused features. Like I would love if Substack would help connect uh, writers to other writers who might be able to like take over their newsletter for a week so that person can have a vacation. Because I know too many newsletter writers who've just been at it like week after week for years and literally have never taken a vacation and they didn't even really know that was an option. So that's, a, that's a pharmacological solution. For those of us who've been writing for years. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah. And I also think, Zane, of your idea of like basically the like duet or stitch or reaction feature that's you know popular on YouTube and TikTok would be amazing. Like if you could basically quote somebody else's whole newsletter in your newsletter. That is what I would love to do as well. Like these sort of friendly newsletter across newsletter debates and things like that. And one thing about like Heather deleting that commenter or unsubbing that commenter, go ahead. Like I'm all for that kind of moderation because it's like so well established. Like I don't need to cite like 50,000 studies on this, but it's pretty clear there's a first person effect. Like you let a couple of people come and be jerks, essentially. It'll just ruin the environment. Like it doesn't mean everybody else turns into a jerk, but people are going to be like, I'm not going to have this conversation here, which is part of the problem with other social media. So I, I also like, you know, I want more aggressive ability to moderate the comments or highlight one, because right now, for example, I have no way of, for example, pulling a thread to the top. Like sometimes there's a thread on my newsletter that's really interesting And I would like to just pull it to the top and say, look, people, this is actually an interesting argument here because there's like 10 others going on. Zainab, I feel like you want complete control, though. I just, (laughs) I think that's... No, I want, uh, yes and no. I want control over the environment and having it intellectually open, you have to trust me. Like, because if I'm not going to be intellectually open, like no amount of taking control away from me 
solves that problem. It just opens up to billion bad faith people. Like the openness has to come from the person in an environment that you get control over the environment. So I don't think like the openness can be technologically solved. I worry about, I worry about Substack having too many features. I'm sure that Chris and Hamish worry about that too, because it's so simple right now, even though I want total control too. I want the ultimate power in the universe personally, like a, like a superhero. But yeah, it's hard to balance those two things against each other, I think. So speaking of more features, a quick question, Hamish and Chris, Uh, video. You guys have moved into podcasts. Is Substack video a thing on the horizon? Yeah, I think we would love to do that at some point. And, you know, the, the thing that guides us here is we look at things that writers are asking us for. And we have a podcast beta feature where you can basically have a podcast in your Substack. And we did that because a lot of writers were like, hey, I want to have a podcast that ties into my thing and has all my subscribers and all the same stuff. And so that's kind of the, the, the thing that leads us there. And I definitely think that that is on the horizon at some point in the future. Any other like random mediums you want to get into? All of them, but only in the long run once we've <laughs> solved all this other stuff that these nice people have asked. Okay, so a quick recap, and then we'll go to you guys for a final word. So I think what you guys really stressed today was that like you guys are not the publisher. The individuals, they are the publisher out there on these platforms. And that you know uh, the, you have to be able to just find those writers that you so strongly feel the, the connection to that you're going to follow them wherever they go. And that's kind of the idea behind you know publishers losing some of their writers is that previously it was hard for them to take their audiences with them. They didn't have Twitter. They weren't building their own email lists and now they are. And that gives such an opportunity for creators to leave publishers, especially if they're not sort of making it worth their while. Um, and, you know, that maybe the, the blogging has this value regardless of whether it's been run through a fact-checking process, that there is plenty of content that exists in, you know, in the journalism sphere that's really important, but there's a lot of opportunity for other stuff as well. And it doesn't always require a huge overhead in bureaucracy. And, you know, a lot of people think of this as like a rise of solopreneurs, but I like that you guys think about wanting people to maybe run small organizations and teams as well. It's not just about uh, sole individuals. And on the moderation front, you know, you guys have, you said you're taking a a stance, a stance in that you believe in sort of free press and that you want people to be able to write what they want. And, you know, barring some really heinous uh, violations that you're going to let people do, uh, do what they want and say what they want, because the relationship is not between you. And it's not like a a three-way between you and the reader and the writer. It's the reader and the writer, and they get to make that decision. Um, And I really like that you guys are thinking about uh, the idea of not being the sort of polarizing algorithm, that you don't play that part. And I do wonder if that's going to become more complicated when you get more into discovery, because you're going to kind of have to endorse some writers. But the idea that you're you're not getting uh, pulled in the direction of, you know, incendiary content by an algorithm that incentivizes it with engagement while constantly telling people not to do that the way that some big social platforms are, I think that's really positive. Um, And I, I love that there's now finally this new business model because for a while it was just harder for people to actually make money off of their writing and that was sad like I hate the idea you know information being free sounds so positive until you think that like somebody actually has to do a lot of work to create that information and I like that you guys have uh, have created this system where it's really easy and you don't have to do all the work of spinning up your own platform to be able to make information paid and not free Uh, and I I love the history lesson that you gave Chris about how you know when people switched from the web to mobile they went from 
using bookmarks and like going to these destination websites to mostly interacting with the internet through these apps and push notifications. And that it turns out that email is one of the last apps that is on everybody's home screen and has those notification abilities, but isn't as a mediated channel as some of the algorithmic social networks. Uh, and when it comes to payments, you guys talked about taking some of that risk onto yourselves and that you actually try to warn writers up front when you give them these deals where you're going to take, you know, the majority of their revenue for a while while you give them a cash advance and saying like, you may actually make more money if you don't take it. And I like that transparency because, you know, for so long, I think writers have not felt that transparency, whether they don't get the metrics from their, uh, their publications or there's so many layers of bureaucracy that they don't have a lot of negotiating power. I know that was the case uh, at Verizon, which owned AOL, which owned Yahoo or Yahoo owned AOL. And they all owned TechCrunch where it was like, I was so far removed from the final boss that I really had no negotiating power when it came to compensation. Um, and that a lot of writers have been hurt by these promises that the uh, publications or publishers or uh, platforms step away from. Um, and when it comes to keeping those reporters and those writers on your guys' platform long-term, you, know, you you guys have recognized that when somebody's making $100,000, a million dollars a year on the platform and they're paying 10% for you, you have to go a long way to uh, to, you know, to offsetting that value. And you know, while you guys have done some great pioneering work of offering health insurance and legal defense and connections to editors and designers and replacing some of the aspects of a newsroom, you guys have recognized that it's really the growth rate is the only way to offset that. That if you can show that you're helping people grow 20% that, that they wouldn't have gotten somewhere else, then that 10% fee actually looks like a negative 10% fee on their uh, on, on what they're doing. And so the ways that you guys have talked about that are you, know, you talked about doing a blog role feature that you have now so that writers can shout out other blogs that they're offering, but also thinking about that collaboration of that med, maybe you can lean on writers a little bit more heavily so that they actually get into that process of collaborating, cross-promoting, and helping all blogs rise on this tide, as well as having that unified reader experience that you guys have created. Um, and I think one of the things that I really uh, care about is the, the idea of what, what's happening and the change that's going on in newsrooms. And that, you know, while we might have thought of it as maybe a shift from publishers to personalities, it's really more an augmentation, that there's all of this great, weird, strange, eccentric content that maybe didn't fit in the word counts, didn't, didn't fit in the sections of a newspaper that suddenly can have uh, financial freedom now and have an opportunity to thrive. And that there's a way to be financially stable that doesn't depend on ads, which is you know related to the attention economy where, economy where you have to just sort of shout and bleat and you know do the most incendiary thing to get readers or just accept that things were, were going to be free. And I think that that's, neither of those is sufficient. Um, and I love that you guys are offering this opportunity where you fill that gap. Uh, and some of the great feature requests we had, Zainab was talking about, you know, more of a Discord style live chat feature, a way to have more debates uh, inside of Clubhouse or ways to sort of quote an entire other person's publication or, or newsletter so that you can have these back and forth beefs, which we know can often drive a lot of attention because people get on, get heated and get emotional and get on one side of the other. Uh, and a huge thing that you you dropped, Chris, was that you guys are interested in video in the long term. But I think the, the most beautiful part of this whole trend is the idea that there is a new form of writing that didn't have a home before, that didn't fit into these traditional publications that would could only be written by people who were financially stable. Maybe they were academics. Maybe they had a full-time job and they were just doing it on the side. But now there is a full-time way to make a living writing about what you're passionate about, no matter how weird, no matter how niche, no matter what the subculture. So I really appreciate that for you guys. And so with that, I want to give Hamish and Chris the last word. 
one of our uh, readers on Constantine.club submitted a question saying, you know, there are a lot of big names on Substack or, that are already established. You know, what can a newbie do to start to gain traction on the platform? What is your advice to writers just getting started or maybe if they haven't even gotten started? They're, they're hoping to maybe get started. They're trying to get over that shyness. What's your advice to them? I keep publishing stuff. Uh, there's nothing that beats momentum. You're not entitled to an audience overnight. It's hard work, but bit by bit, you can build it. Chris, what about you? Any final words to aspiring writers out there? Just start. Just go. Start. Get your friends on there. Start publishing. That's the high order bit. And apply to Substack Local, the, uh, the local news initiative that uh, Substack is running to help local news organizations get off the ground. Amazing. I think that is probably the best advice is just keep at it. That if you find an area that you're passionate about that's growing in importance and that's maybe somebody somewhere will pay for, that if you just keep at it for long enough, you can win that war of attrition. You can become the expert because when people, if you have a publication, people will talk to you. Smart people will give you their expertise. You can become somebody that is recognized in an industry and whether you see it as a springboard into your next career or just a way to self-express, it's so important. Just don't quit. Keep on putting the, the keys to the page. <laughs> so thank you guys so much for joining us here, Hamish and Chris. We really appreciate you spending the time with us, answering all our crazy questions. And Zainab and Heather, thanks so much for joining us up on stage as well as Bill, who had to leave. Really appreciate it. Uh, Hamish and Chris, thank you for creating a new way to self-express. Thanks, thanks for having us, Josh. Bye, thanks for having us. Bye, you guys. Thanks again, everyone, for coming to Press Club. If you'd like to get a recording of this show, we'd love to be able to send it to you. Uh, you can go to constein.club uh, and subscribe to get the podcast that we'll have out in a few days. You can also check out some of our previous podcasts uh, from our episodes with the CEO of Patreon, the CEOs of Facebook, Shopify, and Spotify, as well as the WordPress and Slack CEOs who were on some of our previous shows recently. Uh, and we have newsletters as well on Substack. I've got my Substack newsletter. Just published a big one on the history of the creator economy and the creator crisis that was caused by big social platforms neglecting monetization. So if you're interested in any of that, would love to have you as a subscriber. Go check it out, constein.club or constein.substack.com. And we'll be here next Thursday, 6 p.m. Pacific on Press Club, where we bring together the big names in uh, technology and business to discuss the most important issues facing our culture. So I want to thank everybody out there for spending their time with us. You know, your ears, your time, that's the most valuable resource I can imagine. And so for you guys to spend a beautiful afternoon with us uh, here on Clubhouse means a ton to me. So please uh, go check out the the show. Come back next week. Tap that little press club button at the top or subscribe to me to be able to get notifications about our future shows. And like the founder said, just go write something. Just get started. You can do it. Thanks again. I'm Josh Constein from SignalFire. If you're building something in the creator economy or in the future of self-expression, we'd love to hear about it. We're funding startups in the seed to series B range, and I'd love to hear what you're building. So please reach out to me via Twitter or just reply to one of my Substacks. But otherwise, I'm Josh Constein from Press Club. It has been an absolute pleasure. We will see you again next week, 6 p.m. Pacific Thursdays. Farewell. well.